the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. Some of you have heard me before talking about before the age of social media, uh, back when um, when journals and a few newspapers had essays of heft. They lasted a while. They were circulated around. They were talked about. Sometimes there were conferences built around them. And you don't get that kind of essay or that kind of writing that much anymore because of the supply and because, I guess, of the demand of it. But I stumbled on one. You get a few every year. I stumbled on one in uh, the free press, uh, thefp.com, that if it isn't that kind of essay, it should be. And it is a delight to bring the author of it on. She is Lisa Sellen Davis, uh, well-respected um, and published novelist. And the piece is titled How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors. It relates a little bit back to my monologue earlier in the show. Lisa Sellen Davis, uh, thank you for joining us. Let me give out your website as easy as it is, lisasellendavis.substack.com. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. And I guess it's worth noting uh, you, are a, uh, you are a sun devil as well. You are a proud ASU graduate, <laughs> yes? I went to ASU for grad school, yeah. There you go. There you go. 40 million years ago. <laughs> yes, I understand, which is, uh, which is more recently than I went. <laughs> so, okay. Lisa Sellen Davis, How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors. Over at your Substack page, you talk about the birth of this article with um, someone originally writing you from an anonymous Twitter account um, sharing uh, – you tell the story, how this came to you, better from you than from me. Yeah. Someone wrote to me on Twitter and said she was in a master's in counseling program in one of the most respected programs in the country. And she had shared uh, something that I'd written and a few other articles, something else I'd written for the free press that was about um, some controversies about how to keep uh, how to treat kids with gender dysphoria right. or kids who are identifying as trans. Right. And she had shared them um, on a text chain with her classmates with a simple kind of, I stumbled across this. You know, what do you what do you all think? Mm -hmm. uh, because they were learning about the affirmative model of care, which they're told is is the only appropriate model. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening was a student reported her for violating a code of conduct because she shared those articles. She was put on a remediation plan uh, that said she um, was insensitive to transgender issues, and she was brought before a panel of professors, and she essentially had to disavow what she'd written in order to continue in the program. And it was just a, such a shocking story uh, that, I, that I went to the free press with it and said, we need to talk about what's going on. So the idea here, or not the idea, what happened here was someone shared a piece of yours 
and asked people in, a, in an academic setting, in a setting of higher education, post-secondary education in any event, uh, asking their opinions on it. And that was enough to trigger a backlash and the need to apologize for having done so. That is, is, is that pretty much what happened here? Yeah, I mean, not not only needing to be apologized, but being intimidated, intimidated. and threatened, threatened essentially with expulsion for sharing alternative viewpoints. And and underneath that notion is the idea that just sharing the alternative viewpoint and again asking for and asking people's opinions about them, yeah. evidently was some kind of trigger, some kind of an emotional or psychological trigger. It sounds like as well, like people just were so offended by it they could not go on until until she withdrew and apologized and genuflected. Right? Yeah, I think that there's an entire generation that trained that language is violent yep. and that viewpoint diversity is code for hate and bigotry and uh, that interrupting a very particular series of thoughts um, is a way to oppress people. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, there's a lot we could go into yeah. about that. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, I think part of it has to do with, people being raised in a time of, um, although we have really intense economic inequality, other kinds of equality we have more than ever before. Women are doing better than ever before. Lots of different racial minorities are doing better, even though there's still a lot of suffering. But sometimes you have people who haven't really gone through any suffering, Mm -hmm. and they believe that language is violence. They Mm -hmm. believe that misgendering is violence. Mm -hmm. They don't they they may not have actually come into contact with real hardship mm-hmm. and but they've come into contact with ideas like needing trigger warnings yeah. or you know they've they, these lessons that are about if someone makes you feel uncomfortable you've been harmed right. and it's a very 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 strange mindset for someone training to be a therapist right because you know that that whole experience is about uh, attacking, embracing, going back to uncomfortable moments. Yeah, I would it's, think it's, that's right. And this, of course, is what led you into this deep dive into what's going on in uh, training of therapists and in the profession of in, in the profession of psychology. But I would think an aspect of therapy, uh, or at least as I used to understand it would be rather than engendering those beliefs, views, thoughts, emotions, um, you know, adapting and becoming, you know, somewhat more comfortable with the idea that uh, not everyone believes the way you believe. Someone may have a different opinion. You shouldn't be afraid of words. You would think that that would be what a therapist would help someone who is so triggered by a mere look at an intellectual article, right? You would think. I would think. You, you would think, but what happens then is that these, the therapists themselves get trained in, you know, what, what in the article we call critical social justice right. or social justice ideology. Right. And, and then they themselves get so triggered in the sessions that they have to fire the clients. And one of the things that's really difficult about these culture wars and our political polarization is that there are these phrases that sound really great to one group and are, you know, deeply offensive to another. Right. So, 
for a lot of people, social justice is a wonderful thing. And I, I saw somebody, I can't remember what, some, someone from one of the psychological associations after the article came out saying, no, we need more social justice, not less, because to him it means paying more attention to minority stress or having more cultural competency, uh, imposing your biases less on people. Right. But, but for a whole other group of people, it means this very narrow binary way of looking at the world as oppressor or oppressed. Mm-hmm. So the person in front of you isn't an individual who's had experiences that are, some are about what social category they belong to and others are deeply deeply personal and have nothing to do with that or little to do with that. They're just seen as, they're just rating everyone as oppressor or oppressed in each context and making it very difficult for them to strengthen themselves to face the hardships of the world. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try to fix the injustices of the world, but it's a really big question of how much therapy should specifically be about that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I think a lot about that. I talk a lot about that because it seems to me the purpose of psychology and therapy should be to have people be less anxiety-ridden and less fearful and less frenzied. But as you put it in your piece, or as I think one therapist told you, uh, the way that the psychological profession is moving now, they're not helping people heal. They're helping people stay in or live in their victim mentality. They're keeping them harnessed down by the victim mentality that they have, that, that they have been brought up in or want to want to soak in, I suppose, is a way to put it. Yeah, and of course it's not it's not all of them, right? These no, are right. these are the these are the people I found and there are I'm sure there are plenty of people doing good therapy out there. But I think that because this is happening in the training programs and in and the language of the professional associations have changed, I think it's going to get harder for the people who want to practice kind of traditional psychotherapy. And you see that. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just uh, just okay. a little music to go into the commercial break. Oh, okay. Uh, but we, okay. In fact, if you don't mind, we'll just stop right there for a moment. We'll come back okay. on the other side. We are talking sure, to. Sure. Thank no, you. I... We're good. We're talking to Lisa Sellen Davis. Her most recent book, Tomboy: The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. We're talking about her piece, How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors. Lisa and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to have with us uh, author Lisa Selen Davis. Her most recent book is Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. But her piece at the Free Press, thefp.com is the website, How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors. Right before the break, Lisa, you were making the point that, of course, this isn't the entirety of the profession uh, engaging in this form of critical social justice or CSJ. But many of the professional organizations seem to be embracing it and making dictates around it, if I read it right, if I read you right. Yeah, I think they felt pressure the way a lot of corporations did in the last couple of years to publicly express their sympathies with 
social movements like anti-racism and um, and sort of trans rights and and in doing so to to show that they're you know on what they they think is the right side of history they changed a lot of the the language that they use and even though in their code of ethics it says you know therapists and counselors should never impose their biases onto clients it also says things like we as social workers therapists counselors whichever whatever the organization is that our primary commitment is is equity mm-hmm. and um, to, to help various kinds of minorities or marginalized communities. And again, you know, that's great. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with doing that. But the problem is how does that get manifested, not just in the organization, but then in these, in these individual experiences? And, and how much does it manifest as censorship and of people feeling like they're not free to do their work as therapists and clients not feeling free to share with their therapists who've been trained this in this binary, you know, good versus evil thinking. They don't feel that they can express themselves. And then what is, how is it, how, how is any of that working when in a therapy room, you can't be honest. Right. And you highlighted uh, some cases where when clients were honest, the therapist ultimately in some of these cases fired them. You know, I was just thinking this. I, I, I paid a lot of attention to and I kind of grew up in and around critical race theory. And one of the one of the manifestations of it, at least in the last several years, has been this notion of um, neutrality, if you will, colorblindness is itself a form of racism. And, I th- and, and so a sentence here you wrote really jumped off the page to me. Neutrality and objectivity, once the cornerstones of, 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 of ther- therapeutic practice, are now seen as tools of oppression and white supremacy. It's kind of the mirror image, or at least the modern analog in therapy, what, they are, what they're doing in, I guess, other forms of critical race theory. Yeah, I mean, it's about equity versus equality. Mm -hmm. So if you're, um, you know, if your object objectivity, you know, let's let's say, I guess the idea is no one is objective, right? And we're all biased. Okay. And so there, therefore, are you going to bring the biases of the people who already have power Mm -hmm. of the oppressor, or are you going to use the biases of the people with less power? If we're if we're redistributing power to create equity, well, then you're going to, you know, then, then you can't use objectivity because that's going to privilege people who already have more. And look, I, again, I understand these ideas. And I think that using the lens of race to look at history, to look at personal experience, it, it's useful, but it's Correct. one lens. Right. It's not the only lens. Right. And I think that um, when we declare war on objectivity, especially in journalism, right? right? Maybe we can't. Maybe we can't ever achieve it in journalism, in therapy, anywhere. But it should still be our goal to to speak truth, right? And to and to to understand the lenses that we're looking at problems at people through. And, and try to set them aside. And it's okay if we never achieve that, but to call the practice 
bigoted, I think, keeps us from helping people, and it, and it keeps us from understanding the, the larger picture of uh, what's happening both to individuals and to our society. Well put. And I want to get into this notion of, you know, when someone seeks therapy, they're obviously seeking some kind of help, psychological or perhaps even psychiatric in some in, in, in stronger cases. But the notion that objectivity wouldn't be the cornerstone of the kind of that kind of therapeutic practice strikes me as the opposite of what psychology is about. I mean, you, let me try it this way. If someone is suffering delusions, they have a mental health condition that needs treatment, and feeding the delusion is not seeing the world objectively. There are all kinds of grandiose delusions around that you would think it would be the practice of psychotherapy or therapy, mental health therapy, to lead the person away from, not be comfortable with. I think this is one of the sort of semantic difficulties of what's become known as social justice, whether or not it is about that. Okay. Which, which is that if there is no objectivity, if there is no objective reality, then we're just going to choose somebody's subjective reality and whose is it going to be, okay. right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I do believe that there are some facts. And some of the facts that I believe in have now become um, completely heretical to my own side, which is kind of, you know, liberal, sure. like, I, you know, that biological sex exists. Well, if, if you believe that um, and you approach um, maybe treating somebody with gender dysphoria with that foundation, well, you're biased. Yeah. You're biased because that's your belief. There is no there is no reality. And it becomes know that that you then seek out a therapist who affirms your subjective reality and that's what you want one of the things that got cut because the pieces are very long but yeah believe it or not it was quite a bit longer at <laughs> during the well process. maybe there's a book here I, i'd buy it i'd promote it <laughs> yeah yeah i think i mean look psychology is fascinating yeah. because think about how biased Freud was and yeah, how many strange sure. ideas sure, and, sure. and and some of the founders of psychology were blatant racist and oh I've had to do a whole re revision of my views of Bruno Benelheim and everything I learned from him uh -huh. <laughs> you know, I know it's yeah. a fascinating field with yeah. some some heroes that aren't any more heroes yeah right heroes anymore right which, yeah which again you know I makes us understand the critique of the idea of neutrality but it it's still the process can still be about speaking truth and bettering yourself and, and becoming more resilient. And um, I, I think that, I think that we, we do need to be able to move past we're, we're all just so biased. Yeah, biases and yeah, we'll yeah, that's a good way to put it. We have to move beyond biases. Again, something you would think psychology would care. Let me take another quick commercial break, if I may, uh, and we'll be right back. Lisa Sellen Davis is our guest. Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different is her most recent book, her most recent piece we're talking about, How Therapists Became Social Justice Royers, over at the Free Press. Lisa and I will be right back.
Lisa Selen Davis is our guest. Uh, she is an author, and we are discussing her piece at the Free Pet Press, How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors. Yeah, I, c- I could speak to you for hours about this, Lisa, so I'm just trying to pick a few things that stood out to me as, as important to bring to the attention of our audience here. And one of the things, love to hear you out on this a little bit further, one of the things that strikes me about um, therapy and, and psychology and, you know, having a patient who you are trying to help heal or help uh, do better, um, it, it certainly is feeling better that you want. You want to have them feel better. But with and how, with what and how, is it to keep them in their prejudices and biases or is it to help them be comfortable with the world they actually live in? There's this quote you have in your piece – I'm trying to remember. I wrote it down, so I don't remember who gave it. But they were talking about the differences between therapy and church or religion. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's no forgiveness. You're just confessing and confessing and confessing. I think many who go into therapy honestly don't feel like they have a lot of agency, and it doesn't help when your therapist is confirming that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and that was a woman who'd grown up in a really repressive Christian cult where she was often unable to express herself as a female. Mm-hmm. And then she, you know, grew up. She was the first in her family to go to college. She ended up going on to get a PhD in education where where this is a, these issues are really festering. And then she ran in um, mostly because she's a white woman that she was she couldn't ask certain questions. And she um and in trying to deal with a public shaming that happened uh, because she asked a, an inappropriate question, or so it was perceived, um, the therapist was just wanted her to investigate her own racism. And, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't mean that uh, she doesn't have any to investigate, and that and that there's a place for that. But she had gone to therapy to strengthen herself and to learn to speak up. So it was an exercise that she was doing where she raised her hand and asked a question in class, which was hard for her because of her upbringing. Mm -hmm. And um, and then the therapy was continued the shaming. And, you know, that look, some there are places you go because you some people want to be shamed. But um, I guess that's not what I guess I'm trying to think of one. But yeah, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. A a Dean Martin roast. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big world, though. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. But that's not and certainly not what she was thinking. And I think I think what I was going to bring up before the break was this this other woman I talked to who didn't make it into the piece, but she stopped seeing young people with gender dysphoria because they did not want to explore anything. They didn't want to talk about what was going on, what might have let, what, why they might want to transition, um, where it, you know, what the source of their dysphoria might be. Comorbidities, if um, you will, you know, other things, right. uh, Eating disorders, self-harm, autism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Because there are, there are, there are a lot of things that can, lead you to feel like you're desperate to get out of your your sexed body as it were 
and and none of them wanted to do any therapy and they had an expectation that that therapy was just um the point of it was just to affirm them right and they had gone there just to have their own views reinforced and they perceived any questions you know normal kind of therapeutic questions um as offensive and even as conversion therapy and so that means that again that you have this an entire generation um that that doesn't know that asking questions of yourself that questioning your yourself and your beliefs can be healthy and important and and a part of self-actualization right and it's I think they're getting it, you know, this article is about how it manifests in therapy, right. but I think they're they're getting it in many different arenas in their lives. Oh, so sure, sure. Even when they seek help, the help isn't really about getting better. Right, right. Uh, yes, and, and, and my gosh, not just other areas of their lives, but other disciplines. This was a short segment. I have one more segment uh, I'd love to do with you if I can do one more quick commercial break with you, Lisa. Okay, sounds good. Great, thank you. Lisa Lisa Sellen Davis is our guest. Her uh, website, easy enough, lisasellendavis.com, and it's Sellen, S-E-L-I-N. Her most recent book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. She and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted and privileged to have with us uh, the author Lisa Selen Davis, author and writer. Her most recent book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. She is a prolific writer over at on her Substack page as well. But her piece in the free press, um, How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors, is I think um, – if I may say so, without the pun, without meaning a pun, critical reading. Uh, it, you just, folks, you just need to read this piece to understand a lot of what is going on. You know, not only in psychology or the field of psychology, but how it is emanating outward into the other areas of our of our life. Lisa, you touched on this right before the break, and I wonder if you might spend a little more time on it. We don't do anti-conversion. Well, talk to me about the anti-conversion therapy and transgenderism. This, this to me, is perhaps the 800-pound gorilla or the, or the elephant in the room that, that a lot of people want to talk about and a lot of people refuse to want to talk about, right? Yeah, and it's really hard to talk about yeah. because, yeah. because it's, it's hard not to sound like a villain right. when you talk about it, but... Essentially, um, conversion therapy or reparative therapy really only applies to sexual orientation. And and what little research there is about it is about trying to make gay people straight. Right. And um, it was, I think there are probably a couple of people who still do it in this country, but um, mostly it was discredited and. you know, show, shown to like not work and make people feel horrible. Right. But in the past couple of years, despite the fact that almost nobody is doing this, um, gender identity has been added to the language of conversion therapy, even though it hasn't it hasn't really been studied 
accepting one very very loosely in this in this like anonymous survey so it's kind of u- useless um bad research right useless so, social science yeah right <laughs> yeah um and so we've by adding gender identity to these um conversion therapy bans which which are kind of unnecessary because no one's doing it it's basically saying if you investigate the source of gender dysphoria if you ask about your other psychiatric issues your history of sexual abuse your sexuality you can be accused of conversion therapy right and right you know, there's a big difference between experiencing gender dysphoria and identifying as trans. And yeah. so gender dysphoria can come on as a result of sexual assault or young children may have gender dysphoria, very young children, uh, as a kind of, you know, growing they, later on, they would grow up to be gay if they're very, very gender nonconforming. It's there are all kinds of They might things. even be subject to contagion and just, you know, some kind of fantasy, right? I mean, they could be. Yeah. I mean, ev- look, everything is possible. And and so asking... I mean, when I was six years get... old, I believed a lot of crazy things. Yeah. And, and you know, there are, they, it takes a long time for children to understand even the concept of gender. And most of us have a different relationship to ideas of gender over the course of our lives. Try being a middle-aged lady. Right. It's all, everything is different, right. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's to, to, to censor therapists so that they can't talk openly about it with their clients and to have the clients trained that, that being asked about it is, you know, <laughs> cruel. And, um, it's, it's just, it's just such a problem. It's just, it's just training people in bad thinking and it's kind of training people to be mentally ill in the place that they go to get well. Right. And with a political agenda, which makes me wonder something that I hope doesn't sound too extreme, but I really do worry about this because I mean, I just studied it when I was, you know, in grad school and undergrad and stuff. I I come at this from political theory, not, not uh, psychology, but, you know, the abuse of psychiatry, the kind of stuff we discovered uh, in its yeah. extreme form with Vladimir Bukovsky and in the Soviet Union, probably in China today still, I think I've seen reports on. But that it, that's what it has the feel of to me. Am I crazy to think that? I think the fields of psychology and psychiatry and medicine are rife with scandals. Okay. And I think people don't realize when they're in the middle of them. And there are there are still people who believe in the satanic panic and there are still right. people who uh, are, you know, multiple personality disorder is mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why psychology itself is so prone to participating in these scandals, but I think that um, the, what's different, <laughs> what's different about what's going on with with gender and trans issues in general is that you have the institutional backing of almost every aspect of American life, of education, of, of law, of changing Title IX, of, you know, teaching kids these lessons in schools, of the medical associations, which are not neutral, but protect doctors. So 
it makes it even harder. Sorry, sorry about the noise. It You're makes fine. it even harder for for us to recognize that we're in the middle of a scandal. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's that's what's so hard about it is we're not necessarily hearing the voices of those who got who've been hurt because many, many people have been trained to dismiss those people as bad people because of some category right. they belong to because they don't subscribe to social justice yeah. and therefore they don't matter. So until we're able to say, to recognize that we are in the middle of yet another scandal, I'm not sure how we're going to make it better, except the article ends on a happy note yep. with a, a lot of new parallel institutions that do prize objectivity and neutrality and not imposing biases onto clients or even training programs. So there is some hope. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, religious do- denominations split and divide and create different, you know, different, different, uh, mm-hmm. different hierarchies and overarching uh, overarching um, churches and what have you, that, that may happen in the psychological field. It just might. I mean, there might be uh, American Psychological Association and um, the United States Psychological Association. I mean, I could see right. it going that way because at the end of the day, there, the, the, the thing I worry about the most is that we're confirming delusions here yeah. and that this isn't healthy for the patient and it's not healthy for society at large. Well, confirming delusions is a is a decent book title. There you go. <laughs> there you go. If you want a uh, if you want a blurb or any help with it, I would be all yeah. over it. I would be all over it. Lisa Selen Davis, thank you for your time and generosity of 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 spirit with us. We really appreciate it and really appreciate this thank piece. So I hope much, we can Seth. stay in touch. Yes. Yes, thanks, Seth. Thank you very much. Of course, Lisa Selen Davis dot com. Lisa S E L I N Davis. Seth, and I'll be right back with a closing thought. Folks, with all our problems, uh, let's not forget the economy either. Stock market volatility, possible recession, long-lasting deep inflation, bank failures. Why Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound the interest, whatever you like. And there is no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in the secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return. Why Refi is based here locally. I would encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there, and I can tell you you won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. And when you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I trust them and like them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm, as I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. Thinking about that conversation with Lisa Davis, it's a great article, folks, it, and it relates to my monologue. If you missed parts of this show or parts of that interview or parts of my monologue, 960thepatriot.com, you can go and get the monologue, listen to that, and then listen to that interview in complete um, in, its complete, in its complete form. Um, French military leader uh, 
Louise Hoche said, um, there is no delusional idea held by the mentally ill, which cannot be exceeded in its absurdity by the conviction of fanatics, either individually or en masse. Think about that for a moment. No delusional idea held by the mentally ill that cannot be exceeded in its absurdity by the conviction of fanatics. Think about what we're seeing in our world today. Think about the Orwellian life we now have to be forced to live in, where freedom is slavery, where words are violence, when men can give birth, when boys can be girls, when riots are peaceful. I mean, think about you know the entire concept of what you had to do with double think and double speak to survive in Oceana in George Orwell's novel. And you quickly look at that quote I just said and realize these are ideas that come from people with delusions. They suffer delusions. But there are mentally healthy people that are giving it credence and political credence at that, which is to say not in the Republican-Democrat sense political, but political credence in the sense of how we run our ship of state, how we run our polis. And they're fanatics. And we're living in fanatical times. On that note, <laughs> David Dahl, thank you very much. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 